sung. We thank you for this truth. For a long time in our lives, some longer than others, we indeed resisted your grace. We opposed it. We walked away from it. We didn't want it. We didn't find it attractive. But we thank you, God, for the work that you have done in our lives as your word teaches us to think about this grand salvation. We love you because you first loved us. And there was a day when your grace proved irresistible. Not to oppose our will, not to drag us kicking and screaming into heaven, but a day when it appeared glorious. A day when the gospel drew us in with irresistible power, irresistible wonder. With joy of heart, we reached out and took your hand and willingly chose to become your children. We thank you for this revelation that you first chose us. We're awed by it. We don't fully understand it. We just are humbled to know of your love and your grace for us as sinners. And together we rejoice as a church today in that grace and in your saving purposes in Christ. And I pray that we'll understand them better, that you will move us by your Spirit, teach us your word and your will I ask God that we would grow in grace today under the teaching of your authoritative truth. For those who know not Christ as Savior, we pray in their behalf that you would bring life and grace and that the irresistible glory of the gospel would be seen. Through Jesus we pray, amen. Rooster, man, or rock? The Church of St. Peter's in Galicantu is located on the eastern slope of the western hill in Jerusalem's old city. See a picture of that here. And the spire atop the sanctuary roof of this Roman Catholic building is, is rather attention-getting. I'll give a closer look of it, at it here. You notice the a black cross, nothing unusual there to be expected, but perched on top is a golden rooster. Galicantu is a Latin word meaning cock's crow. And yes, the building is positioned over the place where some believe that Peter denied Jesus, even though the actual location is probably not there, further up the hill, this gleaming rooster stands to this day as a testimony of Peter's excruciating denial of Jesus on the night of his betrayal. We remember Jesus' words, you will betray me, three times before the cock crows, twice. Yes, uh, this building reminds us of that excruciating night in Peter's life. In the courtyard of Caiaphas, Peter found himself surrounded by unsympathetic bystanders. And when passed by them, when pressed by them, Peter claimed he did not even know who Jesus was. And the rooster crowed. In that hostile environment, under worldly pressure, the man that Jesus named Rock crumbled 
Earlier that night, you remember on the Mount of Olives, Peter had stood up for Jesus. He wielded a sword in his defense, but circumstances shifted and he found himself isolated, vulnerable, and he found himself outside the circles of worldly acceptance and worldly power. And in that dark moment, a moment we understand all too well to the core of our own souls, Peter became the rooster man. We begin a series today through Peter's first epistle, and I think it's important as we do to pause and recognize at the outset that this book is written by Peter the Rock. Three decades have passed. Thirty-some years have passed since the risen Christ ministered restorative grace to Peter on the shores of Galilee, where Peter had grown up, where Peter had worked, where he had become a young man, where Jesus had found him and worked with him and had ministered his grace to Peter. There again he ministers his grace to this hurting disciple who had betrayed him. And I think it is wise then that we understand this experience in Peter's life, but also understand that the author of this epistle is a man who is experientially aware of the intense pressure that the world can bring into the life of believers. That it can exert against those who remain loyal to Jesus Christ. He is then, I think, a man uniquely qualified as our counselor to counsel us on how to respond to the pressures this world exerts against Christ's followers. This is a rich book in wisdom. It's a rich book in practical guidance for those who identify to the core of their being with the rejected Christ. Now there's a popular Jesus of people's own imagination. Many identify with this popular Jesus who says all the things that they want to hear But for those who understand that in this world Christ is the rejected Savior and is yet to this day, there's a rich word here, a book of wisdom and guidance. It's written to believers facing intense persecution. We're dealing with real life where a world had raised its hand against the followers of Christ, where Satan was seeking to crush them. And this book speaks eloquently and with keen insight then to our brothers and sisters this day throughout the world who are facing similar intense persecution. It also speaks to us who face a much lighter opposition on one level, the level of external persecution. So it is a book that I think speaks wisely to the traumatized Nigerian woman whose home was recently attacked by a militant Islamist mob. They killed her nine-month-old child, her three-year-old child, her five-year-old child, and her husband. How do you talk to her? What do you say about to this woman who identifies with the rejected Savior? Peter speaks. And he speaks as one who very soon after this letter will give his life for Christ. 
And it speaks wisdom to those who suffer in far more routine ways. Somewhat shocking to us, but the church in Indonesia here who just recently had their building bulldozed. The authorities are resisting them. They felt that they had caught them in a, uh, a minor error. And so this building that these people had poured in all this blood, sweat, and tears to erect was bulldozed in front of their eyes. What do we say to them? In our beautiful building, you, what, what, did you, what was your concern today? I know mine was snow on April 14th. It never crossed my mind that the city of Burnsville may have a bulldozer at the front door knocking down this building. There's people in this world who live with those kinds of concerns all the time. And this church in Indonesia is meeting near the rubble of their building today. What do we say to such people? Who is qualified to talk to those who suffer with the rejected Christ? If you're looking for a lot of light-hearted sentiments and feel-good Christian advice that strokes your pursuit of the American way of life, Peter is not your man. This rock is not your man, and you might as well just go. But if you want to hear from a man who is wide awake to the battle for faith, if you want to hear from a God-empowered rock who talks frankly about the transforming power of the Gospel in a hostile world, and he knows what he's talking about, this book is a treasure trove of wisdom, of rebuke, and transforming hope. And I hope that through the weeks as God gives us life together to work through this book, that we too will understand its message and gain from its instruction, though we do not face such physical opposition. Maybe we should more than we do. Maybe we will soon more than we do. But we do need to recognize in our own situation the orientation is somewhat different. The external persecution is not present in a culture that says, believe whatever you want to believe and leave us alone. Don't cause any trouble and all is well. But in that kind of an environment, Satan has a different kind of attack. And the attack of temptation and the lure of the world to that issue also, Peter speaks with great wisdom. There's so much here. I'm excited for us to work our way through this book and to glean from this rock, from this one inspired by the Spirit of God who inspired these writings to instruct us in the ways of the Lord. By way of introduction, we come to the first verse of 1 Peter. And we find here Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ as he introduces himself. His name, Peter, his given name, I would assume, from his mother in the Hebrew tongue, and his father was Simeon, Simon in the Greek. James, uh, Jesus rather gave him the name Petros, the Greek for rock, at times transliterated Cephas in the Greek New Testament, which is from the Aramaic word also for rock, Kepa. So we have uh, four names, Simeon, Simon, Peter, Cephas, all of them with these two ideas, Simeon or Simon, 
rock or Peter, Cephas. His office described here, he's an apostle of Jesus. This means Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It means that Peter was appointed as Jesus' official messenger, invested with the authority to represent Jesus. This is not to say that every word that passed from Peter's mouth was pure gold and absolutely perfectly true and right. It is to say that his written words of counsel here are more than friendly advice. They are the very words of God. We hear from the apostle, from the chosen one Peter, the words of God to his people. And so the counsel and truth we find in this book is life-giving and it is life-sustaining. And it is a word of great wisdom to those who are facing persecution in our day and temptation from Satan who prowls about like a roaring lion. The recipients of this book... We find their designation here, first of all, in verse 1. It's written to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Elect exiles of the dispersion. Let's pick that apart uh, for a few moments. The elect, the Greek word means chosen. It's another uh, way that it's often translated. These believers are not electors. They are the elected. They are chosen by God to be His people. You are elect you are chosen people you are exiles now that translation fails us a little bit the exile sends the message they've been kicked out of somewhere they've done something wrong that's not the case here it was the case with the babylonian exile but that's not the concept here here the idea maybe could be better translated sojourners we just don't use that word uh, much today but a sojourner, that is a temporary resident who, stay, who stays for a time in a place that's not his or her own. So exiles are resident aliens who have a higher loyalty to another homeland. A higher loyalty to another homeland. They are exiles, and they are exiles of the dispersion. Intriguing word. It's a word used after the Babylonian exile in 586-87 B.C., to describe Jews who live outside the borders of the promised land. They are the people of the dispersion, of the diaspora. The identity of the Jewish people, we need to understand, is bound up with the land that God promised to Abraham. If you are a Jew, you think of yourself in relation to this land. You can see yourself no other way, really. Your identity is not all about family and language and national identity. For Jewish people, the land is a huge aspect of who you are. So those living outside the promised land see themselves as people who have been scattered from their homeland. Now Peter does something amazing here. He uses this term, the dispersion, to refer not only to Jewish believers but also to Gentile believers. Some take the dispersion here and without thinking much further say, well, Peter's writing to only Jewish believers. The argument could be made. But I think there's an argument also to be made that some of the recipients of this letter are Gentiles. 
I'm convinced to that end for a couple of reasons. The first is that we have studied Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts. We have no such benefit from Peter's journeys. But in studying Paul's journeys in the book of Acts, we find that Paul went where on day one in his visit to any city? He always went at his first opportunity to the synagogue. And he presented the gospel of Christ to the Jews in that location. What do we know from the history of the book of Acts? We know that Gentiles always responded. Everywhere Paul went, he started with the Jewish synagogue, but there were always Gentile responders to the gospel. Knowing that it's not just Paul's strategy, I I say this to say if Paul had a strategy to reach only the Jews, it would have worked. He went to the Jewish synagogue first. But knowing that even though even that, that was his strategy, God in his saving purposes was calling out Gentiles to, his, to himself and at a rate that was really beginning to bypass the Jewish respondents. So as we compare Paul's missionary journeys, it's very difficult for us to consider here that Peter is writing only to believers in this whole region that all of them are Jews. In fact, he's even going to cross over into some of the territories where Paul apparently had worked in his missionary journeys. But more significantly, notice verse 18 of chapter 1. It's kind of significant. Is this written just to Jewish believers or to Gentiles as well? 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, Peter says, "...knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers." That would be a very unusual way to refer to, a, to entirely Jewish readers. The futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. If anyone describes that way at length, it would be the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, and that's not how he talks about it. God has chosen Israel and has bequeathed to the forefathers of Israel the truth of God. Now, undoubtedly, even among the Jewish people, there were ways inherited from the forefathers that were not redemptive and were not good. But this would be a very unusual way to refer to entirely Jewish readers. The emphasis was always on the truth that had been passed down from generation to generation. Also notice chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. Peter writes to these recipients, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Again, a strange way to talk to to an entirely Jewish audience. The Gentiles involved here is the society in which these people live, and they were a part of it. Not absolute proof here in these ideas, but it does seem there is strong indication here, I think, that Peter looks at believers in a united body of Jews and Gentiles sojourning together in this world. So he's using dispersion here in reference not only to Jewish Christians who are outside the land, but probably using it in a, more, in a larger, more figurative sense of Jews and Gentiles as the church of Christ in dispersion. That is dispersed out throughout this world 
as exile. So just as the Jews' self-understanding and orientation was bound up with the land, so the Christian's identity is bound up with a heavenly homeland. Jews dispersed from the land always look back to the land. Believers in Christ who have been saved by His work, we also are sojourners. We are temporary resident aliens on earth. Peter David says it this way, for people facing, as we apply it to the context, for people facing persecution, it must have been extremely comforting to realize that although they were rejected where they were living, they did belong somewhere. Their hope was to travel in that direction. That last phrase is worth its weight in gold alone. Their hope was to travel in that direction. It is evident by the way that you live where you're traveling. So is it evident by the way that you live that your ultimate focus is not on this earth, but that you are passing through to an eternal home? Where is the direction of your life? Where are you headed? Do you see yourself as an exile in this world? There's an identity project at hand here. And Peter works hard for them to begin to recognize that they must address this identity project. We see their identity described here as elect exiles of the dispersion. Resident aliens temporarily here with a different loyalty to a different homeland traveling to that place. That's who I'm talking to. That that sets the stage. You see it. It sets the stage for what he has to say to these people who are suffering such difficulty. We find then secondly their location as we consider the recipients. We find their location described here in verse 1 as, as from being from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Doesn't probably mean a whole lot to us, but here we go. Uh, as we think through this area of the world, each of these names, a province in the larger Asia Minor of the Roman Empire. These provinces are situated north of the uh, Taurus Mountains. If I can point it out here, it's a little bit difficult to see, but right in here, hugging uh, the coast, fairly close to the coast of the Taurus Mountains. So he's in this range here of Turkey and these uh, various provinces of the Roman Empire. So big thing, Asia Minor, one province of which is Asia and all in this range of Turkey, uh, beyond this mountain range. Down here, we find uh, Jerusalem and Antioch up to the north, and then moving west into this region is where uh, the... Oh, I am pointing, and you go... All right, there's a score for self-orientation. Wow, that was terrible. I'm sorry. There's, there's an idea for new technology. Make it bounce off of that right on exactly. All right, we'll start this over. Here we go. This is Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. Uh, Asia is a province of Asia Minor, and it's not Asia that's over there. So that's one thing we have to kind of keep in mind with the Roman Empire and its history. 
Here's the Taurus Mountains. You were having a real hard time seeing that through the back of your head. But here, here's where they are kind of hugging the coast. So Jerusalem, Antioch, uh, the, sort, the uh, uh, base of Paul's ministry westward, which reached as far at least as Italy. Uh, but here we're dealing with these believers here. Some uh, have been touched by Paul in Asia, probably more on the west coast. So Peter is writing to believers that are in this range. Now, we see a, a kind of an interesting thing here that some have chased for a long time. And that's the order of these provinces. Bithynia and Pontus. It's sort of an odd name, but that was all one province that ran along the Black Sea. So Rome just viewed this coastland as Bithynia and Pontus. Paul separates the two first and last. That's a, that's a tip-off, Paul, Peter. That's a tip-off to something that he's thinking, probably in his mind at this point. It seems fairly obvious, then, as historians put together the trade routes, the mountains, the rivers, the seaports, and travel from Rome to here where Peter is likely stationed. There's question about that, but very possibly. They put this together to say that what Peter probably has in mind is, oh, here we go. What he probably has in mind is the route that this letter would take. So if coming from Rome, that's, that's a non-issue. But probably a ship up through this region starting in Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia, Bithynia to another port and back again. Kind of intriguing and there's some who have spent lots and lots of time working that out. Not that it matters a lot, but it is interesting to see how uh, you would ask, why does he divide Bithynia and Pontus? He must not understand that they're part of one Roman region. He's thinking not so much of Roman geopolitical boundaries as he is probably just the practical how this letter's going to travel to these churches. Remember, he didn't blog this. It wasn't sent in email. It was handed to somebody, probably Silvanus, who is his amuensis, his scribe who pens his thoughts. That's, it was delivered by someone to these places. So that's probably how he's thinking. But in verse 2... Peter now expresses further the central identity of God's people on this side of the cross. He articulates our identity as believers in a Trinitarian description of God's saving grace for the elect. Peter records three phrases in verse 2. We're going to spend time on them. They're of utmost importance to God's resident aliens. We see where these people are located. We have a little bit of a sense of who they are. Now notice how he speaks to them about their identity and speaks to us about ours. Three concepts express our distinct self-understanding. Note these three phrases modify the word elect. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is a, a key interpretive point, but I think this is right. To those who are elect, verse 2 according to the foreknowledge of God. So if you write in your Bible, circle the word elect and draw it down to verse 2 to the word according. The elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The foreknowledge 
of God the Father. God chose these believers as His people. They are elect. They are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Their selection from outside is affected by the foreknowledge of God the Father. That is, the foreknowledge of God is more than God's ability to see the future. It certainly is that. But the foreknowledge of God in the Bible also it always involves His determination to act in accordance with His sovereign purposes. What He foreknows is brought about when He says, let there be light. So God's foreknowledge speaks also then of His covenantal favor and purpose to love His people before creation. It's a reminder that our salvation is not based primarily on human free will. Our free will is exercised in choosing Christ. But we do not go on a long search for God to roust Him out of His study and to pay attention to us. The Bible constantly stresses that we love God, we chose God because He first loved us. I don't need to fully understand it, I need to accept it as what God's Word teaches. It's important to grasp that our salvation then is rooted in the purposes of a sovereign God, and that's to bring security and strength to us. The good news is that in eternity past, God chose to graft us into His saving plan and to draw us into His fold. While I may not understand all of the implications, all of the timing of it, the point of the doctrine is not that. It's not that we would beat our heads trying to figure out the relationship between divine sovereignty and human free will. And many do that. And in fact, I think in our day, many get lost in that discussion. And it's a fascinating discussion because it's way bigger than the human mind. So you can never run it out. You'll never run out of gas. Human free will and the sovereignty of God, you can get bogged down in that doctrine, considering it, thinking about it for the rest of your life. That's the good side. The negative side is you may get absolutely no closer to God at all. The point is not that we spend all our days laboring to get the series of events of our salvation in proper order. There's a place for that. It's a worthy consideration. That's not why God has revealed to us that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. If you look at the context where this truth is revealed in Scripture, the way that the Bible speaks of the electing love of God is always intended to comfort us. It's intended to encourage us. It's intended to point us not to ourselves, but to, to a great sovereign God who's had us covered from before creation. The recipients of Peter's letter were facing real, live persecution. Peter is not introducing this thought here so that they go on a long intellectual journey trying to work these things out as such. He's seeking to comfort them. You're facing trials. There's people beating you up. They're misusing you. They're identifying you with the rejected Christ and they want to crush you out of existence. Know this. God has known your name before creation. What does that do for you? It's wonder. It's awe. 
It's a sense that, you know, this isn't just something I invented and made up, and maybe I was wrong all along, and maybe, I re- maybe I'm really in the wrong religion. There's solid foundation here that there's a work of God going on in your life. It, was, it is a comfort to know that none of these persecutions were a surprise to God. None of this threw him off track. From eternity past, he had known their names. He had determined to save them and to protect them. They were part of his story. Not a story they were writing, as much a story as he is writing. Our histories as God's people are locked into this grand story. Come what may, we can always rest in God's plan, and we must. Secondly, this election is tied to the sanctification of the Spirit. So we have the foreknowledge of God the Father, the purposes of God in saving His people, and secondly, in the, sanctif- in the sanctification of the Spirit. So God's electing foreknowledge of His people is effected in time by the purifying power of the Spirit of God. In view here is what theologians call definitive or positional sanctification. In other words, Peter refers primarily to the moment of spiritual rebirth. As he speaks of the sanctification of the Spirit, the moment of spiritual rebirth, when we are cleansed of our sin by the power of the Spirit and set apart as God's people. That cleansing work, that converting work, obviously has long-term results in what we refer to as progressive sanctification. And that's how we more popularly use the term. The sanctification process, the making holy process through time. Here I think the primary emphasis falls on that initial act of God where He cleanses us by His Spirit and we are born again. To use Jesus' term. But again, it certainly includes progressive sanctification we're sanctified by the spirit at conversion thereafter progressively sanctified until we finally are sanctified in glory till we're made absolute holy ones in the presence of god so the father chooses us and affects our salvation by the sanctifying work of the holy spirit so if i could just in a quick sideline say if you have the sense that you are not a believer in christ you have not been born again spiritually let me say to you in part that's not simply your decision there must be a work of god in your life you don't save yourself it's not something that you do to earn but it is a work of God for which you should plead in prayer. Ask Him for this sanctifying work of the Spirit. Ask Him to be cleansed of your sin. Ask Him for the Spirit of God to come and to dwell within you. You'll never ask for anything better. But no, it's not you telling God what He's going to do. And it's not you forcing His hand by your good works. It will come only through the sanctifying power of the Spirit which He alone can give. Pray for it. Seek it. Thirdly, in this Trinitarian statement of the believer's identity, he says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with His blood. I take that all as one phrase, and that's fairly easy to do because you see the emphasis on the Father, the Holy Spirit, and now on the Son. You see that there in verse 2. 
for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. I would look at that as, as a coin. And on the front side of the coin is what we call the head, right? And on the back is the tail. You have the head and the tail. The head, for some reason, is kind of always leading. The tail's important. It's the other side of the coin. It's essential. But we have the head here of that coin is for obedience to Jesus Christ. Indeed, as we look at it, we're really probably looking at the tail first. For obedience to Jesus Christ is, again, I think, to be consistent with the flow of thought, a reference to obedience to the gospel, to conversion. They were elect by God, by His foreknowledge in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. They personally responded obeying the gospel of Christ. Romans 1.5 speaks of the obedience of the gospel. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of, the, of His name among the nations. Romans 16, Paul says, speaks of my gospel, and then he says this, has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. A passage we heard expounded ably last week. The obedience of faith we find in both places. I think in context that's the idea here for obedience to Jesus Christ, but again, the initial obedience and response to the gospel results in continuing obedience to Jesus Christ. So I think on some level it's a both and. As we look at the tail of this coin, we are saved to obey. Obedience to the gospel focuses on conversion, but it obviously has continuing results. God saves no one in order to give them a ticket to heaven and then to leave them alone. That's not how God saves His people. He saves us in order that we would lead a life of obedience. Hear this again in Ephesians 2. By grace you're saved, not as a result of works. Listen to what he says. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God prepares beforehand a walk in, in works of grace in obedience, prior to our salvation by His grace. Also, Titus 2 and verse 14, the Father sent Jesus, quote, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people of His own possession who are zealous for good works. And the question I ask is, zealous for good works in heaven? Oh, clearly, zealous for good works here. But notice again the connection he sent Christ to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify us that we might be zealous for good works. So obedience to the gospel, accepting Christ as Savior, is an act of obedience that is to spill out into more and more obedience to Christ. We are the people who obey Him. All those in parental theory class this morning take careful note. We are created to obey Him. That's our orientation to our Savior. Now, the front side, the head side of the coin, is for sprinkling with His blood. That is, everything resolves in the blood of Jesus Christ shed for our redemption. 
I think he probably puts that here at the end of this introduction because it is the pinnacle in one sense, at least in the actual sense of our salvation. It's sprinkling with the blood of Christ that is all important. All of it's all important. But he ends here with the bloody Christ. With the bloody Christ. Sprinkling? What's that got? To, well, of course, that's infant baptism, many say. Be, how, how could you argue any other way? Sprinkling is, is you Baptists immerse. We, fill in the blank, got it right. Infants are sprinkled. You certainly don't immerse an infant, although some do. That, that's what's in view here, is infant baptism, right? Sprinkling with his blood. Well, of course, if we just look at what the Bible says, it's sprinkling with his blood, not with water. Where is this meant to take us? Not to some later invention of Christendom. It's meant to take us quite a bit sooner in history, and that is to the Old Covenant. That's where these readers would have tracked. That's where Peter is grounded. His whole life he's grown up thinking about the Old Covenant. When God established His covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai, what did Moses do? You remember that strange scene in Exodus chapter 24? Moses sprinkles the people with the blood of the sacrificial animal. What's that all about? Moses did this at the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant to signify that God thereby forgave and cleansed His people, allowing them to fellowship with Him. They were entering into covenant with God, and it would take the blood of a sacrifice to permit that to happen. And so symbolically, Moses sprinkles blood, spews blood, well, I don't know how he did it, but symbolically, to cover the people with the blood of a sacrifice. In like manner, And here's where he's headed. The blood of Jesus shed for us is the cleansing sacrifice which which washes our sins away and permits us to walk with God. As Israel was initiated into the Old Covenant by blood, so believers are brought by the blood of a new covenant, the shed blood of Christ, into fellowship with the Lord. That's the sprinkling with His blood. We might just speak of it as trust in Jesus crucified and risen. But we come through faith to this message of what Christ has done to die in our place, to pay the penalty of our sins. So Peter refers here to that death that ratifies the new covenant and our inclusion among his people by trusting his sacrifice for our sins. And I say this respectfully, that's pretty good for a fisherman. I mean, wow. He expresses here our identity as God's people, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ through the sprinkling with His blood. He's got it all right there. And he's going to work this 
theme out throughout the rest of the book. So I think it's, it's worthy of us to stop and to soak in these ideas rather than simply to skim past them as we enter the book. And to such people then, Peter expresses the hope that grace and peace would be multiplied to them. What seems to be multiplying for them was hostility and persecution. Peter, with level head, with clear mind, says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What? So many think, if if God is treating me with grace, then everything's going well. I'm not having any problems. Peace, that's the cessation of hostilities. There's hostility all around. Grace and peace. Not grace and peace as citizens of this land. Grace and peace as citizens of a different homeland. When you come to recognize what the Father has done, what the Son has done, what the Spirit has done for you, I say grace and peace be multiplied. And His counsel will now begin as to how to see themselves as God's child as they face the trials and the resistance that comes to God's people. You know, on the night when Peter denied Jesus, Peter lost this orientation. His identity and self-perception became shrouded in the dark fog of the powers of evil. On that night, as Satan's minions shrieked their rage, the piercing call of a rooster shook Peter and awakened him to his infidelity and to the fact that he had become entirely disoriented in that courtyard. And Peter, as he learned, no one is prepared to stand for Christ. No one is equipped to withstand the onslaught against the Christian faith who is not grounded in the realities these introductory words deliver to us. In this we find our hope. In our God. In His triune work to save His people. In this is our hope, our identity, and where our orientation needs to be ordered. In the greeting of this letter, then, Peter sets the stage of understanding three orientations or areas of perception that are fundamental to our perseverance in the faith. I'm not thinking of the Trinitarian idea here, uh, that of one of the three, but I think we see these three orientations as we put the book together and we put this introduction together. First, our perception of what God has done, is doing, and will accomplish for His people. Here's where it's at. Number one. Here's where identity must be directed, our orientation. Our perception of what God has done, is doing, and will accomplish for His people. We need to be rooted in that. We need to soak in that truth. Chosen according to God's foreknowledge. Secured by the eternal purposes of the Father. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Initially and progressively now. The operative power of the gospel of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins in the lives of the elect who learn to obey His will. All of this says one thing to those who face opposition. I am not an afterthought. I am secure in my God. Nothing can thwart His purpose to save, progressively sanctify, and forever redeem His people. Nothing. 
There's a story going on here, and it's an ugly one. People are dying. The followers of Christ are being pressed and persecuted, misused, discriminated against. But the King of the universe has written our names on the palm of His hand. The second orientation is our relationship to the world. We have to be getting this straight as we consider Peter's words. So know what God has done for you. Root yourself in it. Think of what the triune God is doing to save His people. But secondly, you've got to order yourself rightly with the world around. We need to recognize that the world is hostile to God's purposes. In great, big, over-the-top ways, in so many subtle ways. The world is always working to draw us in and away from God. What that might do is to send us to our rabbit hole to hide, to secure ourselves behind our Christian castle so no one can touch us, but it's the same world into which God sends us to reach the lost. But we do need to recognize that the world is bent against the purposes of God. God sanctifies us. That is, He sets us apart as holy when we're bent back to that world through temptation. We're not rightly orienting ourselves to the world. Peter walked into a cauldron. He thought he could remain anonymous and get by with it. But he didn't recognize in that moment the intimidation of the world. So there's temptation, intimidation. Persecution, enticement. One of those two ways, Satan is constantly pressing God's people. And the world is ordered and organized to resist us. We must then resist it. We must resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. We must draw upon the strength God alone can supply to withstand the assaults of this world. There's an orientation there. Not a hiding orientation. Not a withdrawal orientation. An orientation that maintains mission but recognizes I live in a hostile world. One of the ways to get away from that hostile world is to join it. To identify with it. But God calls us to this, do not love the world or the things in the world. And to our worldwide brotherhood, many of whom face stiff persecution, there is a solidarity here with those who suffer. The sacrifice that God's people make in this world is not jihad, but sacrificial death. We must bind together with them and know they're going to die. But we know that's the world in which we live and the world we're seeking to reach, the world for which Christ died. Thirdly, in orientation, our self-perception must be rooted in the reality of these relationships to the world and to God. Our self-perception. So we're looking at God and what He's done. We're looking at the world as a hostile force against God and His ways. But then thirdly, we need to see ourselves 
rooted in these realities. That is to see a radical orientation to God's purposes and the cosmic war that is raging. So, in self-perception, I see myself as a traveler. I see myself as passing through to another homeland. I'm an alien, a sojourner, a traveler whose eyes are fixed on another land and whose ultimate loyalty is there, not here. I see myself that way. Remember the Israelites in the wilderness? That's kind of where we are. Christ, the Lamb of God, has died and we've been delivered from Egypt from our sin. But then there's the wilderness wanderings before we reach the promised land. Just to use that as an analogy. We're in that wilderness. There's hostility. There's difficulty. There's a need for persistence. But we're going somewhere. And that's the hope against the persecution and against the temptation in a world that doesn't like Christ and His people. We're going somewhere. We have a homeland. And as travelers, it is our future orientation, not our present orientation, walking by faith, not by sight. Our focus on eternal reward and vindication that gives us hope. I think these are great words. Let me share these with you too then. Quoted, furnished, quoted by David says, As believers, our existence receives its definition and direction from the future, not from the present. From God, not from the world. Yet for a time we are in the world and beset by its claims and contingencies, transitory as those are. Our focus is the future not the present. You understand that rightly. We have great necessary attention to the present. But our focus is on another land, another place. We're travelers. These fundamental orientations then toward God, toward the world, and toward how I see myself in the story of redemption are essential to withstanding the schemes of Satan that are being hurled at us. In our culture, particularly temptation, allurement, enticement. In other parts of the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ withstanding persecution, oppression, abuse, and discrimination. But when we're equipped with these orientations, we will, by God's grace, never betray Jesus, but stand like a rock against any tide of opposition in a world that rejects Him. Thus equipped, we will rejoice to identify with the rejected Christ, knowing that glory is coming. It's about what He is doing, what He's done, what He's doing, and what He will do. Yes, it's a hostile world, but we travel through it, and we're heading somewhere else. This gives us a great start into a book of grace reflected in a man who came to embrace that grace and who was won by it. Though he once crumbled under the pressure, he could now, by God's enabling grace, stand as a rock. And he calls us to do the same. Let's track with him. Let's think about it together. Let's meditate upon it in our home groups, in our own minds throughout this week as we seek to stand as a rock for Christ and not betray our Lord. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, the strength is not in us. We know that. We know ourselves to be weak. 
insecure, given to temptation and trial, and, and to cave into trial. We recognize, Father, that in so many respects, we are weak and helpless apart from your strength. But I pray, Father, that you would so strengthen us, that you would so enable us. And I pray that we'll stand with loyalty, that we will trust your purposes, and that we will live out our days as a witness to the glory of your grace and not give in to the pressure of this world. We pray to this end, asking that you'll do a work in us through your Spirit. In the name of Christ, we pray. Please stand and join together in song.